Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. The Breakdown is sponsored by the Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And this particular episode took me to the Great Smoky Mountains, a place with a musical heritage that's rich as any on earth. I drove from Dolly Parton's hometown in Sevierville to Dollywood in Pigeon Forge. And while I was there, I didn't just do my interview and pick up cinnamon bread. I also spent an entire day basking in Dolly's music and history and riding around on some pretty epic roller coasters. That is just one tiny taster of what Tennessee has to offer a music-loving visitor. Did you know that no fewer than seven genres of music can be traced back to Tennessee? And you can discover even more about the people, places and events that shape music history with Tennessee Music Pathways, a statewide programme that preserves the legacy of music in Tennessee. If you want to visit the places that inspired so many of the records we talk about on this podcast, check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist and all-round bluegrass novice. So this week... We are talking about one of my favorite records of all time, Dolly Parton's The Grass is Blue. Dolly Parton, of course, is singing on the whole record, and she wrote several of the songs, but it's an all-star band. It's, it's kind of like uh, the Telluride House Band, the bluegrass wrecking crew of instrumentalists 
featuring Jim Mills on the banjo, Barry Bales on the bass, Jerry Douglas playing the dobro, Stuart Duncan on the fiddle, Brian Sutton on guitar, and the groove master Sam Bush playing the mandolin. It was released in 1999 on Sugar Hill Records, and it is really, really good. And yet, at the time, it didn't really get a lot of airplay on on mainstream country radio, apparently. But remains one of the most critically acclaimed albums of Dolly Parton's career. And it won a Grammy. It won a Grammy. In 2001, Grammy for Best Bluegrass Album. And I feel like I should um, say right here, right now, that I... Um, I feel a bit bad for Patrick because I got to go to Dollywood last week and he didn't. <laughs> he was... I did not. I've been, it's, it's still on my bucket list. And what's worse about the fact that I got to go to Dollywood and he didn't was Dolly was there. And so I did get to sit down and chat to her about this record and we've got her talking about it later in the episode. But to try and you know, I did try to make up for this, Patrick. So I brought you some uh, some of Dolly Parton's own recipe, cinnamon bread. Which we are eating currently while drinking delicious hot coffee in Nashville, Tennessee. And I also have a little present for you. Really? Yeah. This is real time. Whoa! She just handed me a signed postcard from Dolly Parton that says, To Patrick from Dolly Parton. This is a big deal. You've been planning this for a long time. I, I've been holding on to that. Yeah. I'm going to treasure that for the rest of my days. That is magic. Wow. Thank you. She is a wonderful woman. She completely lived up to um, every good thing everyone said about her. And so I'm really excited for for us to have her on the podcast. Um, But let's chat between us a little bit about the record before we we get into uh, into the interviews and the quotes. This is an album like many of these albums that I have come to very late in my life. And I've got to say, I can totally understand why it's one of your favorites because it's, it just rocks. It totally rocks. The, 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 the songs that she selected to do are incredible and diverse and slow and fast and always groovy. Uh, I I know that she worked very closely uh, with Steve Buckingham, her producer to select all the songs and write some of the songs we should also mention that it was recorded and mixed by the great Gary Pachosa, who we're also going to talk to a little later in this episode about his memories of that time. Um, I totally agree with you about the selection of the songs is incredible. And also the pacing of the record. It kind of kicks off um, really fast with Traveling Prayer and then kind of slows down with a Hazel Dickens song. And, and then it peps up again with a Flans Grugs number. And, and then, you know, a bit later it goes into, you know, the kind of weird, folky Silver Dagger. It's, it's, it feels like it's got everything. And it, and it, feels, it feels really crafted. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it feels just like you say, but also she made a really clear point of keeping it bluegrass it is a five-piece bluegrass band or six-piece with jerry douglas on the dobro uh but it's essentially it's the traditional bluegrass quintet the whole time and and it's not overly produced there's not tons of reverbs or drums or anything it is a bluegrass band and yet i feel like the way that she gets that really diverse flow on the record is through the song selection Um, I also, I have to say one of my favorite things about this record, one of the things that struck me right off the bat, the first time I listened to it is that 
It is a Dolly Parton record, but she uh, goes out on a limb and opens the record with about 35 seconds of solo Stuart Duncan. You're going to win over every fiddle player when you do that on a record. It's such a curious, it's such a curious start to the record, actually, because it's it's a very it's a slow kind of melancholy ballad intro of this Billy Joel song that she's picked, and then it just fades into nothing, and then suddenly they just kick kick straight into the actual upbeat, you know, totally in your face groove. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Anyways, I sing that song to myself all the time. Traveling Prayer was one of several songs on this album that Steve Buckingham uh, raised an eyebrow about. That that there were a number of the song choices that she sent to him that he thought were a bit wacky, and this was one of them. Uh, which is is strange actually because Traveling Prayer had already been covered uh, as a bluegrass number. Uh, Earl Scruggs' review had done it the year before, and actually, if you listen to the original, there's on Piano Man, there's banjo and fiddle on the original. It's not that big a leap to turn it into a bluegrass number. Oh, interesting. I, I, I've, I must admit, I've never listened to Billy Joel's version. We should play it. We should, we should play it. Hey, I'll take a look on around and I'll find where my baby is going to be. Hey, Lord, will you look out for her tonight? Cause she is falling across the sea. But it's completely joyous, and I I love the way that the way she sings it with such balls means that she's it's like she's telling it's it's this thing that's a, a, ostensibly a prayer, but really she's telling God what to do. Right. There's no there's no it's clear that like, you know, on the pyramid of who's in charge here, Dolly is actually in charge. There's I think there's a lot of truth to that in her life. I got in a little trouble at the county seat. Lord they put me in the jailhouse for loafing on the street. But then we move right on to Cash on the Barrelhead, uh, which is a classic Leuven Brothers song. Beautiful song and she I mean, I, there's a lot of things I love about this song. Uh, of course, Dolly's singing, but I think that this is really a Sam Bush feature. He, uh, he gets to play that, that lick uh, every time those kind of hits happen, and he plays it very much like himself, Sam Bush, but there's this kind of Monroe edginess to it, big downstroke mandolins. The, the mandolin is just screaming on this track. I think that's really true. And I think you f- you can actually feel Sam Bush's character coming out of it, weirdly. There's that, there's that bit where the mandolin has a solo and there's some instrumental stabs in yeah. the middle. And it just, and then it goes into a dobro solo. But it just feels really like it's Sam. It's, it's Sam's Sam. character coming out. Definitely.
Well, you know who else's favourite song it is, which is why it's on the album. It's Dolly's husband, Carl's favourite song, or ah. one of them. And he had said to her, oh, it's too bad you can't do that song on your Bluegrass album because, you know, it's it's a it's a guy song. All, all the words are about um, being a guy and beating Dolly because she's amazing and she's badass. She just said, why can't I sing it? And as she does for several tracks on this record, um, she changed the, the the lyrics to suit her because she's not going to let anybody stop her. Don't sing love songs, you wake my mother. She's sleeping here, right by my side, in her Says that I can't be your I think we also need uh, to talk about Silver Dagger. Um, it's, as you said earlier, it's a classic kind of folk song. But she sings it beautifully. It's a beautiful melody. And, and again, she, she really, her voice suits this song so well. But also, you know, I've heard this song lots and lots of times by lots of people, but it only really struck me just how weird this song is. When I hear Dolly sing it, there's something about it where I think she's aware of the kind of weirdness of like, I don't really, this beautiful woman is sleeping in a bed with her mother while the suitor is trying to woo this daughter, but the mother's holding a silver dagger. I mean, that's, I can't imagine a situation like that that's not just totally bizarre. Well, so it comes from a 19th century ballad apparently and i think it sounds like it could be scottish i wasn't able to trace the origins uh, more specifically than that they believe it comes from a you know from the british isles but i i think there's something about the melody that sounds quite scottish and um there are many different versions there's 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 a another version that's called katie dear and another one that's called wake up you drowsy sleeper and in the older versions, there's a whole extra set of um, verses and words that ends with this Romeo and Juliet scenario where not only does, you know, is the lover told, I can't, you know, I can't come with you and be your bride because m- my mum doesn't trust men. And if you if you come anywhere near me, she'll kill you. Uh, so the lover then picks up the silver dagger and kills himself. And says, "Well, if I can't be with you, I'll die. I'll just die anyway." And then the and then the girl also kills herself. Oh wow! Well, I'm g- glad that Dolly omitted that part. Would yeah, Dolly worked. was using the version that Joan Baez had recorded right. in the '60s, I think. The less gruesome, gory version. But she had, she said, um, when she talked about this album uh, many years ago, Dolly did say that she went back and tried to collect the words from her own mother um, and from uh, various different aunts and uncles because it was one of those songs that uh, was sung by their family just around the home. And that's a big part of this Bluegrass album, of course, is Dolly's own history growing up in the Smoky Mountains. And that's one of the reasons it was so great to get to meet her in the Smoky Mountains, just a couple of miles from where she grew up in her little cabin home. 
Dolly Parton, thank you for hosting us here at Dollywood. Uh, the park's in its 34th year. You're opening a new area, Wildwood Grove, that's a celebration of the Smoky Mountains. These mountains are clearly special to you. Well, they are, because I grew up here. I used to run around these hills and hollers, sing my music here and play my guitar and have all the folks. And I understand you're a fiddle player, so you, you would certainly know what it's like to love the music of the mountains. And there's always a song in my heart about the Smoky Mountains. Whether I'm performing it or not, it's always in there. Just a few old memories Slipped in through my so what kind of music did you grow up listening to? Bluegrass music and mountain music, country music, just the old ballads from the old world, really. A lot of those old uh, Irish, English ballads, all, that, all the British Isle music that was brought over from the old country. My mother and all my people used to sing all those great old songs. And a lot of my own music is so touched, you know, tinged with, you know, all those colors from those old songs. Your family was musical as well. My mother's people especially, some of my dad's people, but my mother's people were extremely talented. They all played some sort of a musical instrument, and they all sang, and they all wrote, you know, a lot of their own music. So I, I, I came by that naturally. I think I read that your grandfather played fiddle, the Reverend Owens? Yes, my grandpa was, was a preacher, Pentecostal preacher, but he played a great fiddle, and he played, uh, well, he played the banjo, he played the guitar, he played the piano some, and he had a brother, my Uncle Philip, my great Uncle Philip, to play banjo, and it was, and then he had a couple of other brothers too, so it was always such a joy for me in my childhood to hear my grandpa playing the fiddle, my Uncle Philip playing the banjo, and, and my Uncle Victor playing the guitar, that older set, and then of course then my, other, my uncles that really influenced my life and my music, so we were just kind of generation after generation had a band together, a family band of some sort, and yeah. everybody playing, a lot of them could play different instruments. I read that your first instrument was a mandolin with two bass strings on it. <laughs> well, actually, I had rigged up an old, ban an old mandolin that uh, the neck was gone, but it had the hole in the body of the thing, so I said I knew it would resonate a good sound. And I had taken some old strings off of that, and I had, uh, had an uncle that owned a sawmill, and I had him to help me bolt the strings to the either side, you know, where I stretched the strings across and bolted it down, and then I played it like with a mallet. I found an old mallet, like a meat mallet in the smokehouse, and uh, I wrapped rags around it where it kind of had it, and I would just bang on those strings, and it would kind of give me like those old world kind of sounds. So, oh, I would rig up all sorts of things, although I could play the banjo and the and the guitar and, you know, a lot of different instruments that we all played in the mountains. But I would just make up sounds because it just kind of gave me a droning kind of old world sound. And I would just write songs to that when I was a kid. I can still see that lonesome road stretched out before me. The road that led me out of his life. I can still feel the tears he cried on my shoulder. I just feel like there's this, you know, total transparency to the way she's singing and to what she's singing. She wrote Will He Be Waiting For Me herself and she'd 
I think already recorded it on a 1972 album or she'd recorded a version of it. Um, but what I love about Will He Be Waiting For Me is that it takes this trope that is a very old bluegrass style of song about the 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 lover who's gone off and had their own life and been wandering and getting on and having a great time and the and the sweetheart back home and usually it's a man who's gone off and is saying um if I should wander back tonight will you be waiting you know and uh the way she has written this song is with a completely female voice it's so much more self-doubting and it's there's none of that kind of proprietary attitude towards if I come back tonight are you going to be there and are you going to be available to me this is you know he will be waiting for me he will be won't he she's just asking the question I I love that it's also one of those kind of songs that that does this thing this songwriting technique that I love which is where the listener is kind of empowered with a knowledge that the songwriter doesn't have. This kind of, she's really almost pleading, will he be waiting for me? He will be, won't he? There's this kind of desperation. And as a listener, you're kind of, it's almost like she's talking to you and and you're just kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, I hope so, I don't know. He will be waiting for me, he will be, won't he? Or could it be his love for me is faded and is Clev Lynch is providing the vocals on this one. She she didn't actually sing with Dolly in the studio when she recorded this, she told us, but um, she has uh, had had... But she took the songs on tour with her and she'd also recorded for her before and she's got some lovely memories of Dolly that she very kindly shared with us. I don't believe Dolly was there when I went in to do my overdubs... Uh, that but, but had been the second time I had recorded on one of her albums. The first time I met her was not a bluegrass album, but Ricky Skaggs was producing, and uh, she was there that time, so I did get to meet her then. It was called White Limousine, and uh, she had some really great songs on there. They were, you know, acoustic country, I would say, you know, because Ricky was involved with the production. And I was pregnant at the time. And uh, she walked in the studio, and she had a bag of Hardy's biscuits and gravy in her hands. <laughs> and she, she's, you know, somebody said something to her about eating her breakfast, and she said, yeah, Hardy's makes the best biscuits and gravy. <laughs> I thought, oh, this girl is down home. <laughs> uh, but she, I was pregnant at the time, I believe, with my second child. And she said, you're pregnant. Either you're pregnant or you just ate a big bowl of beans. <laughs> I said, well, Dolly, you know, I really hope I do a good enough job for you today. And she said, well, honey, if you don't, I'll just fire your ass. (laughs) So that was my introduction to Dolly in person. You know, she was just so easygoing. Steady as the rain they fall. Tears that just won't dry at all. Tears that cannot wash away the pain. There is no doubt that Dolly Parton, you know, had a great influence on my own Uh, singing career so (laughs) Dolly was the chick singer that all the girls my age listened to you know when we were learning to sing bluegrass music so she was one of them I mean there were a lot of men to listen to uh, not too many women uh, but Dolly seemed to have that finesse you know even though she was a country artist I've always been singing bluegrass and I have bluegrass songs scattered 
uh, throughout different albums, just a song here and there now and then. And I always wanted to do a true, authentic bluegrass album with authentic bluegrass players, and I did. We haven't mentioned yet that this record came out uh, at a time when Dolly was without a commercial record deal and was looking for ways to reinvent herself. Steve Buckingham was a producer that she'd worked with a lot before, and the story goes that they just happened to be sitting next to each other on a plane one day, and they came up with this idea mid-air, mid-flight. Because Steve was used to making country records, he asked the great producer Gary Pachosa to be the engineer, because Gary had been having a lot of success with bluegrass crossover stars like Alison Krauss and Union Station. Uh, And Gary's another person that we managed to speak to while we were in Nashville. Um, And here he is speaking to us at the offices of Rounder Records. By the time I heard things, like it had been pretty well sussed out, you know, and was, and was, was feeling right. And pl- I mean, we had such a great band that I knew that, you know, that they were going to, that they were going to make it work. Yeah. You know, and with her, you know, with her and your headphones, you know, you're going to play better, you know, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to rise up. I do. I do remember that about those sessions was the was the guys talking about having having her in your head, you know, her and her, um, you know, on the floor singing, you know, incredible vocals, you know, a lot of which were um, were keepers with her. We went back in and, and redid a couple of things, and but just the guys constantly talking about having having that in your headphones, having that yeah. voice in there. And I still. Yeah, the record was recorded at Sound Kitchen, which is a big space. Um, so we definitely tried to tighten everyone up so that there was eye contact. I, th- I know that I isolated, you know, f- the fiddle and the bass. The main thing was just with just sight lines and being able to see her and her being able to communicate with the band, clearly not being locked in a, you know, in a booth where she couldn't see them. She had an amazing lineup of players for that album, and, you know, I actually got to tour with them some, too. Like Jimmy Mills on the banjo um, was just, that was really the first studio experience I had, you know, like hearing him and like really paying attention to all the detail. They were just a power machine, you know, and I think probably they were all giving their best to, you know, when they cut those tracks. Working with Jim Mills was always great just because he's the guy, you know, who can shred and has amazing tone and and he's such a joy to be around in the studio. Dolly loved him. Mm-hmm. I loved, loved working with Jim. It's one of my most favorite things I've ever done, if not my favorite, as far as that. I did another song that actually, or album that I recorded here at Dollywood called Heart Songs years ago. And it was about all those old songs I grew up singing, like Barbara Allen, Willa Garden, and all those old uh, British Isles, old world songs. Uh, so that and the bluegrass album, I'd have to honestly say, on a personal level, level are my two favorites. Because the people you recorded that with were amazing. Rhonda Vincent, Paddy Loveless, Alison Krauss. I know, and all the true bluegrass musicians, too. I didn't want any, any fakers on that one. I wanted everybody to be authentic. I wanted them to all be real, true bluegrass players, bluegrass singers. And that's really a good album, and I'm really, really proud of it. Were you all together when you recorded it, or did people do For it the most part, we were, yeah. All the tracks we, you know, we did with... Uh, Usually the singers, we would come in later to bring them in. But as far as the doing the actual tracks, a lot of those songs were done like one take. I just found out today the little game you play While I've been sleeping on 
if somebody stops me on the street and says, what is the best bluegrass groove ever recorded? I'm going to say, I'm going to sleep with one eye open from Dolly Parton's The Grass is Blue because it's perfect. The the tension between Barry Bales' bass playing and Sam Bush's chop and Jim Mills' banjo roll is just absolutely perfect. And then Dolly just soars over top of it with... Uh, with her vocal acrobatics. She's the queen of lixmanship. That's a Linda Ronstadt word. Uh, Linda Ronstadt told John Starling once, you bluegrass singers have great lixmanship. <laughs> and, uh, but she really is a queen of that, you know. And uh, singing harmony w- with her live was a real experience because she never sang anything the same twice, you know. In the studio, it was just great fun, you know, because you get to do it over and do it right. <laughs> I am ready, oh my children, when Jesus knocks at my door, I'll be there, come morning. Don't weep for me, I'll be with my Lord. We should also touch on the the last track on the record, which was written by Dolly Parton's sister, Rachel Parton Dennison. It's a beautiful song called I Am Ready. Yeah, so the story behind this song is quite heartbreaking, actually. Uh, Rachel uh, was in Los Angeles because... Like we've said, many of Dolly's siblings were musical and and went on to have their own careers. And they were making a record. um, She was making a record with another one of their brothers and they needed a gospel song for the record. And their mother was sick at the time. And Rachel was apparently feeling uh, really far away from her mother, who was obviously back home. And she went into the bathroom while everybody else in her band was sitting in this motel room discussing what to do about the record. She just took herself off. Apparently she sat on the sink and wrote this song in about a half hour. So clearly she has the same speedy creative process as Dolly. Um, But what she produced was absolutely beautiful. And Dolly herself said that whenever Rachel used to sing this, when she performed, um, which she often did at Dollywood, uh, it would make it would make Dolly cry. So she wanted to record it as a nice surprise for her sister. So train, train, just like the record. It starts with solo Stuart Duncan for about 20 seconds. So naturally, I'm in love. Um, But it's also, it's just Stuart Duncan doing the thing that only he can do, which is that groovy, driving, bluesy uh, fiddle sound. And then he does that kind of bow shuffly thing that simulates a train. uh, As Emma says, you know it's a train song, by the way, that Stuart Duncan plays the fiddle in the lead in. And then you get this incredible band entrance that just drops and is grooving immediately what a song and it's another one that dolly's husband carl was responsible for because it was on one of his albums 
1979 Blackfoot album that he had. And she, when she took it to Steve Buckingham, she said that was the point at which she knew that, that her producer Steve thought she'd lost her mind, that she wanted to turn this heavy rock song into a, a bluegrass number like Orange Blossom Special. Right. And it is heavy. I mean, the, the way that band drops, it's a heavy groove. But, oh, it's a great one. It's a good decision. Still holds up. That's that's for sure. I, I listened to it not that not that long ago, and I was surprised how well it held up. You know, it, it sounded sounded great. And obviously, just the her song selection. You know, Steve Buckingham mm-hmm. was the producer, and he helped on the song selection as well. But it was you know she always surprised with the with the choices that she would you know a Billy Joel song that she yeah. hears in a, in a in a bluegrass groove. So you know, as always, her song choices are amazing and you know what however crazy some of the ideas seemed you know it always it always seemed to work the whole bluegrass community knew that when they heard that dolly was doing a bluegrass album we knew it was going to be a huge boost for our community you know and its visibility and a huge endorsement for the kind of music that we played she knew how important it was because she just hadn't done a straight-up bluegrass record. And, uh, you know, we just kept kind of doing Dolly records. They were great, but, but you know, she really wanted to make a statement with this. And I think she did. Do you know, at the time she was recording this, she was also uh, working with Boy George of Culture Club at the time. Right. That's, that's the kind of thing she was doing. This was a really interesting time in her career. There's a song on this album which was written during the period that she took herself off back to her little Tennessee mountain home and fasted for three weeks. This was kind of a creative fast and she wanted to like think about where she was at and what she was doing. And she had juices for the first week, nothing at all for the second week and juices again for the third week. And the result was the album, the songs on the album Hungry Again, but one of those songs was Endless Stream of Tears. Wow. Dolly Parton, while running a literal empire, is able to write not just songs but incredible songs and take a three-week fast. Well, I, maybe there's maybe she's got like like three twin sisters and they just share the burden of being Dolly Parton. And at any given time, like two of them are in Cancun and one is in cottage fasting and the other one is running Dollywood. Maybe that's what's really going on here. She, the creativity definitely seems to flow out of her. In fact, the the title track, "The Grass Is Blue." That um, was written on a on a lunch break while she was uh, recording a movie, uh, the Blue Valley Songbird, and she had. I find the group Grass Is Blue a really interesting one because the first time I listened to it, 
I actually don't like this song as much as I like everything else on the record. It's the one that doesn't quite do it for me. And I always felt like this sounds like a song where the title came first and then and then the lyrics and the uh, the rest of the idea came second because the lyrics are just bonkers. They're, they're bona fide <laughs> bonkers. And, um, and so I never particularly liked it as much. And then I did a little research on it. And it turns out I was exactly right. That's, this is exactly what happened. She needed a title for the album that would explain that it was a bluegrass album. But she didn't want to call it Dolly, Dolly's Bluegrass Album. So she thought about calling it the blast. She thought about calling it the grass is blue, and then needed to write a song around that. And she did it in her trailer on on this movie set in thirty minutes. Apparently, she told her assistant that if anybody came uh, to talk to her, to tell her, to tell them that they, she was asleep, and she just knocked this out. That's how she does it. That's how that's how it is. Because for her, writing a great song takes half an hour. You know, hold my calls for half an hour while, while I write a hit. And the rivers flow backwards and my tears are dry. Swans hate the water and eagles can fly. But I'm all right now, now that I'm over you. And the sky is green. just embedded in my in my psyche. I always call it in my Smoky Mountain DNA. To hear all those old songs that Mama and all my aunts and my uncles used to sing, it resonated, you know, in, to me because I would take it to heart because they had such emotion when they would sing it and they would, sometimes you'd cry when you'd sing all those old songs, whether it be Knoxville Girl or Down in the Willow Garden or Bury Me Beneath the Willow, all those god-awful Barbara Allen, all those songs. About, so it just kind of, it really stirred up all your emotions and all that so it's the same with me today when I when I sit to write there's a part of me that just automatically goes there and that's my best music I think I think I write that best I think I sing it best because it's simple and honest and real but of course I've had to make a living doing other things and I always make my joke about saying I had to I had to get rich in order to sing like I was poor again you know in a way it's true because you don't make any money doing bluegrass as you know so you went to Dollywood and you met Dolly Parton yeah sorry about that yeah I wasn't there anyways tell me about that it was amazing the whole sort of worship of Dolly was something I just chalked up to her music being a very big deal and very popular and then when I met her I got it that it's not all to do with her her music is phenomenal but there is something about her her personality she was so genuine and engaging and kind the thing that makes her so uh, charismatic is that She's really genuinely a nice person. So you could say that her superpower is that she's genuine all the time, everywhere she goes, everything she does. I think that's right. I think that's why she's such a star. 
You mentioned earlier today um, when you were on stage uh, talking about this kind of disconnected time and how music can b bring people back together. Um, is that important to you right now? It's been important to me always, you know, because I, I love people. I don't know why we can't love each other a little more, try to reach out a little more, try to be more accepting and tolerant and just knowing that we're all human beings. We all hurt the same. We cry the same tears. You know, we, our kids are our kids. You know, it's like every, everything that we are, we all feel it, you know, like that. And I, to me, if I can just do anything to bring people more together, to be more accepted and loved and to think that we're God's children. We're not, we're just God's children and we just need to try to love and to do a little better. And that's, I love the Festival of Nations because, you know, different parts of the people come from all over the world and through music, you can kind of touch each other in a way that you can't usually, certainly not through politics or through all the stuff that's going on, but through music and poetry and all the creative arts, you know, we can reach out more. But uh, music really has a, it's just timeless, and it's just, it's just pure love, I think. And it's and expressed that way with people around the world. You can kind of communicate in ways that you couldn't. Even if you don't speak the same language and you don't understand what they're saying when they start playing, you feel it, you know it, and they're there. So, yes, I'm happy to be part of that, and I think it's important. And I'm going to try my best from here on out to try to love people and try to bring people more together. That's the end of this episode. Thanks to our sponsors, The Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And don't forget to check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip now. We wanted to let you know about a, a couple of other things Patrick and I have been up to. Shameless plug alert. <laughs> Patrick has an album out with his band, uh, the Lonely Heartstring Band, called Smoke and Ashes. And I uh, can attest that it's actually very good. I have now listened to it about a dozen times we're gonna I, we're gonna make a whole season of the breakdown just about my record yeah look forward to that folks <laughs> and emma has a book out uh in may of 2019 called wayfaring stranger i haven't been able to read it yet but i will yes i shouldn't say that <laughs> i i bet you it's good <laughs> i've only read one chapter it was great that's true. You've read a chapter of it because I let you see it before I submitted it to the publisher. Yep. And it's about um, a trip around bluegrass country that I've taken over the last 18 months. And it's going to be published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK, but you will be able to get it on Amazon. In fact, you can pre-order it now. Thank you very much to Gary Pachosa uh, and Claire Lynch for sitting down and chatting with us about their memories about making this record. Um, Thanks to Dolly Parton herself for uh, taking the time to chat with Emma at Dollywood. We will always love her. We will always love her. And thanks to Dolly and Emma for this beautiful signed postcard that I am absolutely going to frame and keep next to my music forever. It's a signed picture of Dolly Parton. Come on. Thanks very much. Tune in again. Tune in again.